0: A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a great show today as we take a look at the social sciences and their role in addressing anthropogenic climate change. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and I know we've been on a bit of a break, as between speaking gigs and taking care of little Cecilia, I barely had a chance to sit down in the studio. But fear not. We're back into the regular swing of things now. Also, I know many of you have been dying to hear from Sarah, our lead data scientist again. And just for you, she'll have a new article on the South of Two Degrees blog in the next day or so. So make sure to check it out. By the way, I've already read it and it's absolutely incredible. I really think you're going to love her perspective. Now, last week, I had the honor to speak at NASA as they invited me to come and give a presentation on climate change, scientific outreach, and how we can better communicate its implications and achieve better policy at their interagency forum on climate risks, impacts, and adaptation. Now, it just so happened that I had the opportunity about a week prior to speak with the director of the National Academies, Dr. Warden, and our conversation had turned towards the importance of the social sciences. As one of the nation's top minds, it was great to have a conversation with her about how important the social sciences are, even when discussing things we think of as being dominated by the natural sciences, such as climate change. It was enough of an inspiration that I decided to spend a part of my lecture at NASA on narrative structure as the absolute latest research demonstrates how effective the right conversation can be at promoting pro-environmental behavior. Now, over the last weekend, I looked back at the conversation at NASA and I realized that this was a piece we had yet to talk about in depth here on this show. So for today, I thought I would adapt a small part of that lecture for this format and share it with you. So let's begin by going back to 2011, as it's then I was listening to my member of Congress at the time talk about the debt ceiling, and it was painfully obvious he had zero understanding of the financial mechanisms of the federal government, so I did what any normal person would do. I yelled things at television that you can only say out loud in your own house and before you have kids, unless of course you want those things repeated by a two-year-old. However. I then looked at my wife and I said, you know what? We need good people to run. In fact, I should run. Well, fast forward a year and I'm my party's candidate running for United States Congress. And guess what? I lost. Narrowly, but still lost. Now, why did I lose? While I'm sure there is a virtual cornucopia of reasons, there is one big one that was a critical flaw on my part and my part alone. You see, I made a miscalculation, and you can laugh at me if you like, but I had this noble thought that the election was about ideas and knowledge. I knew I had a better understanding about policy than he did, as well as a wide array of other topics. I mean, I even got him to admit, live on air in our third debate, that he wasn't, quote, smart enough to understand climate science. At the time, I thought, man, I've got this locked. But what I got wrong what I failed to understand at the time is it's not about the most innovative ideas or even just being smarter. Rather, it's about the message. Well, that and money, but that's a rabbit hole we aren't going down today. The important thing here, and the one that I missed, it's finding that specific message that connects and sparks that desire for action. Now, the reason I told you about my own miscalculation is because we face a very similar, if not identical, problem when we speak out on addressing anthropogenic climate change. And within a segment of our society, we're making the same mistake. The scientific community is much more knowledgeable on the subject. the ins and outs has studied it intensely for decades and they have some pretty innovative ideas. So why then are we not winning the fight? Well, I would argue that in part, it's because of the message. You see, if we need the scientific information to make accurate decisions, yet when we have it, it fails to drive us to action, what do we do? How can we effectively communicate, and what's the secret to doing so? The answer to that is an interesting one. And it's fueled by the natural sciences, but driven by the social sciences. And instead of giving you the long explanation first, I'll lead with the short answer. The secret to effective communication is simply by telling stories. That's it. That's all there is to it. Now, a growing body of research has shown that narratives are much more effective to most audiences. So let's quickly break down the basic narratives and focus in on why stories are so effective and how we can use them to both connect people with the science, but also to encourage pro-environmental behavior. In her 2019 master's thesis, The Narrative of Climate Change, Inspiring Positive Behavioral Change Through Elements of the Environmental Narrative, Annie Constantinescu breaks climate narratives into three categories, science-based, fear-based, and story-based. While her research is extensive and well worth the read, I'll just hit the highlights for you. And as always, you can check out the direct links to any of the cited research papers mentioned on the show over on the website southof2degrees.org underneath the citation page. Now, you're likely well acquainted with the science-based or more technically the information deficit model. It operates under the assumption that the lack of action is a direct result of a lack of knowledge. Ergo, all one needs to do is educate, and anyone who hears will jump into action. Sound familiar? It was essentially what the world tried to do with COVID-19, and yet you saw so many people, especially here in the U.S., go against basic science. Why? Well, Outside of the politicalization, it really comes down to most humans are not programmed to process information this way. So if COVID-19 provided a test case on the failures of the science-based or information deficit model, what works better? Well, a much more powerful narrative structure is that of fear. This narrative isn't new in science-related communication, and there are a whole host of research papers out there detailing its effectiveness. In the political realm, this type of narrative goes back centuries, if not millennia. However, with regards to climate change communication, it's newer than the information deficit approach, but to this day, it is by far the most dominant almost everywhere you look. This strategy came about as the science behind anthropogenic climate change became more clear and individuals and groups began looking for a different approach than that of just explaining the science to motivate people toward action. The biggest adopter of this model has by far been the news. Now, the need to sensationalize and drive viewership requires a model that instantly captivates, and nothing grabs 30 seconds of your attention like fear. The truly damaging aspect of this is too much fear-based narratives, and the uncertainty can actually cause increased inaction as the situation becomes too big and debilitating to address. Now, climate anxiety is a very real issue, especially amongst the youth that we need to address. But if I'm being honest, it's too big of a topic for today, but maybe worth diving into on a future show for sure. Now, if being presented the correct information doesn't motivate well and fear has negative repercussions, what's the best way to go? It turns out story-based narratives are the most effective. So let's look at why, and then I'll end with an example. In the 2019 paper, Stories Versus Facts, Triggering Emotion and Action-Taking on Climate Change, Brandy Morris and her team put it this way, quote, Narratives structured as stories facilitate experiential processing, heightened effective engagement, and emotional arousal, which serve as an impetus for action-taking, end quote. In fact, when we look back to the 1987 paper, Human Communications is Narration by Fisher, he argues that humans are pre-programmed to both tell stories and further persuaded to make decisions based on the coherence and fidelity of those stories. This has been expanded upon developing into a term I dearly love, and that is narrative transportation. Now, narrative transportation is a phenomenon that allows you to be Lost in a story. And if you take away one thing from the show today, I really want to make sure it's this. The latest research out of the social sciences shows that a story with a high narrative transportation component reduces counterarguing, resistance, and reactance compared with less transportive narratives. And this is big here. Irrespective of whether narratives were labeled as fact or fiction. Let me say that another way. Just in case you didn't catch it, it doesn't matter if the story is true or not, as speaking in an effective narrative structure reduces pushback. Now, while we only deal with fact and scientific research on this show, if you're a longtime listener, you'll know I always try and bring in relevant stories as I break down the latest research. There is a reason for this, as it's not just by accident, and it's why I love this advice from Morris's paper, in which she says, quote, Structuring narratives as factual presentations ignore what science tells us about the important role of effective and emotional engagement for optimizing communication and decision-making. To maximize the likelihood of action-taking, our results suggest that science communicators should consider enrobing the presentation of information in a story structure instead. End quote. Did you catch that? In short, communicators should present stories. Now, you may be asking yourself if stories are so powerful, do science based or fear based narratives have a role at all then? The answer to that is surprisingly yes. It's pretty straightforward that our stories need to be grounded in scientific fact. Otherwise, we end up, well, let's just say I think the last few years served to show why we need science at the core of all we do. As for fear, Interestingly enough, it's been found that while we all love a happy ending, an ending to a transportive story with a negative valence is the most effective at getting us out of our proverbial chair. So the short answer is we need all three, but like a well-mixed Manhattan, the proportions need to be just right. I do want to be absolutely clear. We desperately need to let science guide us. And if that isn't summed up perfectly by looking at where our pledges are under the Paris Accord compared to our current policies against the contrast of where science says we need to be to stay south of two degrees C of warming, I don't know what does. But we need to let recent breakthroughs in communication and the social sciences assist us as we are sitting at a pivotal moment and opportunity abounds to drive effective behavior, whether it's through individual conversations or new outreach programs. To bring this all home, I'll tell you the same thing three different ways to demonstrate what we've covered today centered around a hot topic with regards to anthropogenic climate change, the Great Barrier Reef. Starting off with the scientific narrative. Historical calcification records in the density banding patterns within coral colonies have been used to assess the impact of recent bleaching events in the Great Barrier Reef. The 1998 sea surface temperature anomaly, which corresponds with visual growth anomalies in the form of high-density stress bands and reduced annual linear extension and calcification in approximately 70% of the colonies, Following the 1998 bleaching event, an 18% and 13% reduction in calcification was observed at the Pandora Reef and Nelly Bay, respectively. Now let's try the fear narrative. While we often think of the effects of climate change in the terrestrial realm, the changes in the ocean are often overlooked. The planet has warmed approximately 1 degrees C and the ocean has soaked up 90% of that heat and has been on a constant warming trend since the 1970s. Should the planet warm to 1.5 degrees C, it is expected that between 70 to 90% of the Great Barrier Reef will die. Should we continue to warm the planet to 2 degrees C, then it's expected that that death will expand to 99% of the reef. This would cause massive declines in local biodiversity and fish stocks, as well as a $6 billion decline in money brought into the Australian economy through tourism. And finally, as reefs continue to provide medical science with breakthrough treatments, we could potentially lose the solution to the next great human disease. Now, finally, let me tell you the same thing one last time. And I want you to think about which variant made the greatest impact on you and, more importantly, would inspire you to do more. Three years ago, I was living in Australia and a lifelong dream was about to come true. My family was on holiday in far north Queensland. The wildlife was incredible, from mango trees full of flying foxes the size of a small dog to flocks of rainbow lorikeets that rivaled the pigeons of Venice. From palm tree covered beaches to tropical rainforests, the holiday was brilliant, especially as I was able to share this piece of the unfettered natural world with my young kids. While they stood in awe of all we saw, they also asked questions about these incredible animals and the environment in which they lived. However, this particular day was going to top it all. The family was headed out to see one of the greatest natural spectacles on earth. After suiting up and teaching my kids how to use a snorkel, I finally dove into the incredibly warm waters. The sight I was met with after four decades of anticipation was one of brown and white. The reef was completely dead. Coral lay broken on the ocean floor and only algae clinging to their once vibrant skeletal frame. Every once in a while, I was able to glimpse the most vivid hue of blue, but it was just enough to allude to how colorful it had been and stood in stark contrast to the devastation that lay there today. Imagine being shown a dime-sized piece of Claude Monet's San Gregory Maggiore at dusk with the rest of the canvas painted a greenish-brown and being told that the painting used to look like that dime-sized spot. That's what it was like. The worst part was actually yet to come. On the boat ride back, my daughter asked, Why I had been so excited to see that and that it didn't look anything like what I told her it was going to be like. I steeled myself and explained for the first time of what would become a regular conversation in my house about how we had hurt the environment and the fact that an underwater rainbow had been replaced with a nearly colorless expanse was because I, along with the rest of the world in my generation, had caused this. I explained how the gases we put into the air have caused the world to get warmer and when the water warms the coral dies. And it's always amazing to me when a 5-year-old can speak more to truth than an adult. As she looked at me dead in the eye and said, "Well, if you did this, can you fix it? I think we should try, shouldn't we?" The only answer any of us should ever give despite our political beliefs or thoughts on the origins of anthropogenic climate change is simply yes yes we should and that wraps up another episode of south of two degrees I hope this divergence from the natural sciences to the social sciences was worthwhile today. And while I know it was a little different, hopefully you picked up something that will help you as you have your own conversations. And aside from checking out all the latest information on our website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of 2 degrees.